come this Lord's Day to continue in our study, the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ had said to God in olden times, I delight to do thy will. Very early in Christ's ministry, he exhibited a particular zealous delight to do God's will when he cleansed the temple, upset the money changers' table, and let all the animals loose. Christ denounced how the religious rulers and the people had turned the temple sacrifices into a commercial enterprise. Now, instead of bringing your own sacrifice, you could simply buy one on site. Much less fuss and trouble than raising your own lamb, growing attached to it, and then bringing it to God's altar as a sacrifice because you sinned against God. This stripped the people of their connection to their sin offerings and turned the whole thing into the payment of what was essentially a fine. Thus the people were alienated and separated from their sacrifices from their bloody substitutes in the temporal judgment of God for their sins. Now it was merely a market transaction rather than an offering that propitiated God's wrath for their crimes. In a dramatic way, Christ here acted out God's opposition to their animal sacrifices in which He took no delight. In part because the people had so disregarded the offerings of God, After Jesus took this action, the people demanded of him a sign. And he told them that they would destroy this temple by which he meant his own body, but that he would rise again in three days. Even as God had no delight in their animal sacrifices, they would shortly show their contempt for the only sacrifice that does delight God, the offering of his dear son. Indeed, they would soon murder the Lord Jesus thereby unwittingly in their hatred of the Savior, slaying the sacrifice of God's Lamb. They clung to the animal sacrifices that God did not delight in, and they despised the one sacrifice that God so delights in. John's Gospel records the fact that the disciples connected Christ's cleansing of the temple with Psalm 69's reference by Messiah that, quote, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, unquote. Sure enough, Psalm 69 had foretold Christ as our substitute and wicked men's repudiation and persecution of Him. In that psalm, Christ embraces the sin of His people as His own and is treated as guilty in our place. But Christ also takes upon Himself the people's hatred of God when they turn on Messiah for doing God's will. In Psalm 69, Christ cries out for God to rescue his soul and pleads with God to recognize and not disregard his suffering as the sacrifice. It turns out that Christ had foretold by his spirit to David how he would be made a sacrifice that God would accept and delight in and that in the end God would highly exalt Messiah because of his obedience unto death. So in John 2, Christ expressed His perfect confidence that God no longer delighted in animal sacrifices and God would indeed delight in and vindicate the sacrifice of Jesus. That fact was the very sign that Jesus gave to the wicked people who objected to His cleansing of the temple. 
When He cleansed the temple, our Lord Jesus was expressing those profound truths with that great zeal that had been foretold of Him in Psalm 69. This same refusal to delight in Christ's sacrifice played out with His own disciples. When Jesus told them that He would soon suffer and die and rise again, Peter denounced such talk. What was Christ's rebuke to Peter? It was that Peter did not savor or delight in the things that God delights in. But we ought to delight in the sacrifice of Jesus because God delights in it. And so does our great High Priest and Savior. Our Lord Jesus was zealous to delight our God on our behalf and to fulfill the duties that God laid upon Him with that great oath by which He appointed Christ to be our High Priest. Now we come again this Lord's Day to consider the delight of Christ to do the will of His Father. In Hebrews 10 at verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when He cometh into the world, He saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, that is Christ, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. You see, Christ not only comments upon his own zeal, as in John chapter 2, his own delight to do God's will, as in the prophecy foretold by the Spirit of Christ in Psalm 40, but even communicates his joy to us and prays we will enter into that joy. This morning we read a passage from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. And we'll read just a few verses again. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. You see how the Lord Jesus ties His joy and the joy of His people, and the joy of His remaining in them, and that our joy might be fully ties it with this implied sacrifice of laying down His life for His friends. And this would be, to their way of thinking, a source of great sorrow and misery. But in Christ's view, rather it was a, a token or a cause of the joy of Christ and the joy of His people in Christ. That here we had a friend who would lay down his life for us, that we might be saved, that we might go free. This is a great cause, or should be, of rejoicing in our Lord Jesus. His joy and ours are founded upon the love of God for us, are they not? The God of all comforts. That's what we've been speaking about now for 29 episodes. That God comforts us. 
And so our joy is founded upon the love of God for us in that He comforts us, the good that He provides us, the salvation that He has wrought for us through Jesus Christ. And Jesus has told us of His and His Father's love for us and of His indwelling us by His Spirit and of the promise of the resurrection and that He is preparing a place for us in glory and will come back and take us there to be with Him. Those are the passages that are immediately preceding this statement. That He's spoken these things to us. He's related these truths to us in this section of the Gospel of John that His joy might remain in us and that our joy might be full. And this is take place not in spite of the death He's about to die, but because of the death He's about to die, that He's about to die for His friends to accomplish all of this. So in this two or three chapter passage of John's Gospel is laid out a great many of reasons why Christ has joy in us and why we ought to have His joy and will have His joy completed in us. We are to be a joyous, obedient band of brethren with Christ. This is what he is teaching in these last several chapters of the Gospel of John. We're to be a joyous, obedient band of brothers with Christ unto the accomplishment of all of these glorious things. It is, as our songwriter tells us, it is all his victory and all his work But we are there to share the blessings and to rejoice in the victory of Christ and to rejoice in the fact that because Christ has won the victory, so too for us He has won the victory. And in us and by us and over us, and these should knit us together in love and affection and joy with our Lord Jesus, with God the Father, and with each other. Jesus wants us to enter into His joy, His delight to obey His Father. And why shouldn't we? His obeying His Father has wrought redemption, salvation, rescue from judgment, and everlasting life for us. Of course we should delight in Christ's delight to obey His Father. Of course we should be filled with joy unspeakable, as the Apostle Peter says, and full of glory, receiving the salvation of your souls. How can we refuse? After all, our joy and Christ's joy are the outflow of God's comfort to us in saving us by our great high priest and His perfect offering for our sin. Christ told us all these things while He was with us for a reason. We read of this in John chapter 17 during the great high priestly prayer where the Lord Jesus says, Now come out of thee, that is the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's calling upon His Father to see to it that this joy of Christ is fulfilled in His people whom He loves. There is a great purpose in the working and will of Christ and of the Father together as Christ delights to do His will, the Father delights to fulfill Christ's joy in His people, 
How? By saving us, by bringing us unto Christ, by being washed of our sins and made perfect by the blood of the Lamb, by being comforted and guided by the Holy Ghost indwelling us, and by being raised in power and glory at the end by the Savior as He promised us. Here is the fulfillment of the joy that Christ asks His Father to bring about. As Christ redeems us by His righteousness and by His bloody death in our place, the comfort of God sets in upon us as we grasp the unspeakable riches of His love and His grace for us. Now Christ's joy is in saving His loved ones, rescuing His sheep who have gone astray. We read Matthew chapter 18, and then we will refer here to Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter, where it says, Then drew nigh unto Him all the publicans and sinners for to hear Him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So they were offended that Christ was eager to preach the gospel of salvation to sinners, to the outcast of the society, to those who were tax collectors, to those who lived disreputable lives, which as far as the Pharisees were concerned was everybody but them, because only they were careful to keep the law, and yet they didn't keep the law at all. They kept their traditions of their fathers, which were designed in part to break the law and to excuse the breaking of the law. So when they scoffed at Christ for eating with sinners, they rather should have been thinking, wonder if He'll eat with us. We're sinners too, but no, they didn't see that, did they? They thought of themselves as fine with God. And so Jesus speaks this parable unto them, saying, What man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. So here Christ describes His joy in finding and rescuing one of His lost sheep. Notice that Jesus isn't going out rescuing other people's sheep or other people's goats. This shepherd that Christ likens to Himself is rescuing one of His sheep. The sheep that God had given Him. Remember in John chapter 10, Christ makes it clear that where Jesus got His sheep was the Father gave them to Him. And people who didn't believe in Christ and never would believe in Christ didn't believe in Him because they're not His sheep. Because all that the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ, will trust in Christ, will have faith in the sacrifice of Christ, and He will raise them up at the last day. So here Christ compares Himself to the shepherd who has a flock of sheep and one of them goes missing and he goes out and searches for it and finds it and carries it back to the flock on his shoulders rejoicing. He calls together his friends, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost. So Jesus tells us that there's joy like that in heaven 
by Christ, by the angels, by all the saints gathered in before. There's joy like that in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, that's brought to Christ, that finds rescue on the arms and on the shoulders of Jesus, taking him back to the fold to safety and protection by the shepherd. There's great rejoicing over that. And the insult to the Pharisees, of course, is that Christ is arguing as if they were right. They're the righteous people. But where's the rejoicing in that for God? Where's the rejoicing in that for Christ? The rejoicing for Christ is not that you are righteous, especially if you are deluded by your own self-righteousness, but rather that He rescues the unrighteous, the lost, the ones that went astray, that turned everyone to their own way. Because in Isaiah 53 it says, the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquities of all those people. And so here, Christ is telling them that rescuing poor dying men from their sin and folly, rescuing them, redeeming them, bringing them into the fold safely, is a cause of great joy to the Lord Jesus. And that's why He receives sinners and eats with them. How else is He going to make contact with them unless He treats them in a friendly manner and consorts with them and proclaims the truth of the Gospel and repentance from sin and salvation by trusting in Him and Him alone. You see, these people that rebuke Christ, they didn't trust in Him at all, did they? They trusted in themselves. And they prided themselves that they weren't lost like these other people. But really, they were all lost. But the ones that were Christ's sheep, He went out and found and rejoiced in it. You see how there's joy in Christ for Christ when He saves His lost people. This is congruous with the fact that He delights to do the will of His Father, which is what? Put aside the sacrifices that couldn't save and make a sacrifice that does save. And therefore, the joy of Christ is intimately tied into His salvation of the people whom the Father has given to Him. It is the successful execution by Christ of His duty as a high priest to offer a sacrifice that pleases God for the sinners and to make intercession for the people to make sure that everyone He offered the sacrifice for is forgiven, is covered, is saved, is accounted righteous by the God of glory. So there is joy not in them being lost. There is joy in the saving of those that are lost. To save a sinner is Christ's great joy. Now in Matthew 18, the passage we did read this morning, Christ goes about the analysis a little differently, but He reaches the same place. And this was when the disciples said unto Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So here, Christ saves helpless children who come without anything and have no power in themselves. But they are able 
by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, to receive the free gift of salvation which the Lord Jesus has to give to them. Children are very good at receiving gifts, aren't they? Now, they may not treasure them for very long. They might break them and tear them up. That's a whole other story. Everybody loves to receive gifts, but children especially delight. You see the magic in their eyes at their birthday and at Christmas, which as we grow older and less childlike, dulls into boredom and distaste even. But here Jesus says that you have to be converted. This is something that God does to you. You have to be converted and become as little children. You'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven otherwise. So you see, that's contrary to the attitude they had, which is we want to know who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, the greatest is the little child that is converted and comes into the kingdom when the Lord Jesus receives him. So, whoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, they didn't like that answer for sure. And whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, to offend is to harm or to cause to stumble. And so Christ is warning against anyone who comes along trying to harm or cause to stumble away from Christ that such a person, it'd be better if they had a millstone hung about their neck and they were cast down into the depths of the sea and drowned. It'd be better for them, you say. We rightly take this text to be an exhortation and a warning by Christ against meanness and assaults and harms to little children. But you see, reading it in the fuller context, you realize that it really also includes harming, offending, drawing away from Christ, causing to stumble all of His true people because to be His people, they had to be converted and become as little children. The warning is twofold. It's not just to physical small children whom the Lord Jesus loves because it says they believe in Him. They believe in Him. The ones that believe in Him, He's particularly careful about. He's careful about all of His people who have been converted and become as little children and believe in Him. The warning is that you'd better not harm My people because they've come to me as little children. And I have a duty to them. And I have made a promise that I shall not lose a single one, but raise them up at the last day. Christ's people are all of these little children. And He warns against those who would harm them. At verse 11, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Here's a restatement of the warning. That the Father has assigned angels to represent these people, the Lord's little children, those who've been converted and have believed on Him, that Jesus has warned the wicked about deceiving or harming or seeking to tempt away into sin. 
from the Savior. These little children have a special place. They are beloved in the face of God in glory. The focus is on the fact that Christ has come to save that which was lost. And so you'd better not mess with the folks that Christ is here to save. Compare the children with the lost sheep. They're helpless and they're doomed and only Christ can rescue them. And Christ then moves on to this, verse 12. How think ye if a man have an hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray? Doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? If so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. So here he is repeating the parable of the shepherd seeking after the lost sheep. He rejoices over when he finds them, when he rescues them, when he redeems them. And this is all the more reason that the warning is dire for anyone who tries to take away any of the sheep that Christ has redeemed, that Christ has been assigned to raise up to the last day. The people who've been converted to little children and have believed on Him, it's all the same group of people, just different metaphors. Christ rejoices over the saving of His lost sheep, just like He rejoices over the saving of His converted little children who trusted Him. But notice verse 14. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So here Jesus ties this teaching into that teaching in John's Gospel, the sixth chapter. God's will is that these children, that is you and I, young and old, female and male, rich and poor, slave and free, that all of these people who have been converted by the Holy Ghost to little children and believed on Jesus, that it is not God's will that any of these people be lost. It's not His will that that sheep be lost. And this is not just a will of, well, I hope it's true or I firmly desire that it be true. No, this is the will that Christ described in John chapter 6 of the Father that will surely come to pass with 100% certainty because what does He say? This is the will of Him that sent me that all of those that He has given me shall come to me and I will lose nothing but will raise them up at the last day. So this will, you see, of the Father is perfectly congruent with the work of Christ in being made a sacrifice, in saving His people, in not losing a single one because His sacrifice is perfectly efficient and satisfactory to accomplish the purpose for which God ordained it, for which God delighted in it. And so, as in John chapter 6, this is the will of the Father that I lose nothing but raise it up the last day. So here again is a beautiful retelling of Christ's delight to make Himself a sacrifice so that God's delight is fulfilled in our redemption. 
And because of this joy of Christ in our redemption, the joy spreads to us. We receive that joy. We're the beneficiaries of that joy. How can we not delight in it? How can we not rejoice in it? That Christ has saved us. And that He will certainly bring us to everlasting life when He raises us from the dead. How can we not be full of joy with that? This is how Christ's joy is fulfilled in His people. Because what He rejoices over will surely and forever be wrought in His people. And our joy, you see, flows from His joy. And His joy is that which cannot be overturned or frustrated or disappointed in any way. And so neither will His joy in His people be frustrated, disappointed, or overturned. It will surely be brought to pass. It will surely be brought to pass. It will surely be brought to pass. And this is because God has comforted us, you see, by His solemn oath to Christ to appoint Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think about the words of that hymn that we sing, Lord Jesus, Thou, and none beside its bitterness could know, nor other tell Thy joy's full tide that from that cup shall flow. Thine is the joy, but yet tis mine. Tis ours as one with Thee. My joy flows from that grief of Thine. Thy death brings life to me. At first, of course, before we are converted, there is no joy, there is nothing but contempt and despising. But the Holy Ghost changes our hearts so that we believe and are saved declared righteous, promised everlasting life. And so the joy that is Christ then becomes our joy. And it overfloods us. And you know, one day we will detect and feel that joy to the fullest when we're in the presence of Christ. When all of these things of this world that distract us have been taken away, been raised in power and glory and seated with Him around the table of the Lord, there'll be great joy there. But if we will pay attention to the Lord's table and what it means, we will see the joy worked out in our hearts as we contemplate the joy that Christ had in making an offering that could save people and overthrowing the offerings that could never save. And so we come to this table where we are reminded of what Christ did for us. And we need to have the joy in us that Christ had at the prospect of fulfilling the requirements that the Father had laid upon Him, that He save all of His people and lose not one of them, and that He make an offering for sin to do so, and that it is not the will of God that any of His little ones who Christ has been sacrificed for, should ever be lost ever again. Praise God. Well, I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it, and He broke it and He said, Take and eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sins. O God, our Father, we rejoice that you have joyed in the saving of your people whom you love, that Christ was full of joy at the prospect of saving his people, saving us around this table who've trusted in you, who've trusted in the name of the Lord. We thank you for that joy, and we pray that you will cause us to get a sense of it, not only around this table, but all through our days as we walk and as we meditate and as we think about the grandeur of what Jesus did for us, that he's accomplished our redemption. We thank you for his blood that was poured out like a lamb whose throat was cut, bled to death there at the altar. And our Lord Jesus was strung up in shame upon the cross and had his side and heart pierced and died there shedding his blood to make an atonement for us. We thank you that his body and his blood are far better sacrifice than any animal sacrifices. And we thank you that he was willing to offer those things up to delight to do your will to accomplish the redemption and the salvation that you intended. And we thank you that Christ's sacrifice does indeed save all those people that you gave to him. All the people that it was intended for will be saved forevermore because the sacrifice is effective for the redemption of your people. And we thank you that he was obedient unto death like that and that he did shed his precious blood and that he executed therefore by his blood the new covenant in which you promised to write your laws in our hearts and convert us unto yourself and in which you promised never to remember against us our sins. We thank you that our sins have been taken away by the bloody sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Bless us as we partake of this cup, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 147 in the black book. Behold, a spotless victim dies, my surety on the tree, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. He gave Himself for me. Whatever curse was mine, He bore. The wormwood and the gall, there in that lone mysterious hour, my cup, He drained it all. Lord Jesus, Thou, and none beside its bitterness could know, nor other tell Thy joy's full tide that from that cup shall flow. Thine is the joy, but yet tis mine. Tis ours as one with Thee. My joy flows from that grief of Thine. Thy death brings life to me. Number 147.